Well, here we go with another episode of Radio Friendly Unit Shifters. Jeff Sweatman, your host, and I'm joined each week by great folks that I've known for many, many years in the music industry from various sides of the industry, uh, from behind the microphone in some cases, and on the other side of the uh, the phone or the Zoom screen in other cases, as we welcome in the man behind Right Arm Resource. He's been doing his... Uh, independent promotion for many years, even before I moved to Charlottesville. I've known Jesse Barnett for a long, long time. So good to speak with you, man. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. I appreciate it. It's great to see you. Yeah, this, it's been a while since we've chatted, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, good to check in. And uh, how's your 2020 been? I'll, we'll start there. <laughs> you know, it's been okay. Uh, you know, I'm not a touring artist, so yeah. <laughs> I've been home-based now for almost 22 years. And so the whole concept of, you know, working from home and having to get used to the, you know, a new world order of that type of non-office environment in 2020 was not new to me. I mean, the main thing on my end was actually getting used to other people being here because, you know, my wife and I are both home during the day every day, but normally my son's off to college, my daughter's at school and had a million activities. And so, you know, it's definitely been a challenge to get used to things uh, of people being in the house, but happily the work has still been there. Radio has been, you know, it took a couple of weeks of figuring stuff out, but it's been, uh, it's been a good year in terms of music and work. And, you know, hopefully we'll still get, we'll get back to some kind of, you know, finger quote normalcy, you know, into next year. So we can all start having the lives that we wanted back. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, been a crazy year indeed, but um, I might pick your brain about some of your own personal favorite uh, releases of this year and uh, a look ahead to some of the projects you're uh, able to tell us about. Sometimes you, you can't spill the beans too, too soon. We yeah, want to, there's a lot of the, don't let anyone know this is coming, but, don't worry, you'll be working it. It's like, okay. Right. <laughs> yeah, so there's only so much you can say about certain things, but maybe we'll get a little bit of a sneak peek at 2021 here at, uh, towards the end of the show. But uh, I wanted to take people back to kind of your beginnings in the industry. And there's a thing um, for folks that don't know, and I'm not sure I really knew the extent of it until I hired Kendall Stewart to work with me at the corner and uh, the Emerson Mafia. There was hardly yeah. a day that went by where she did not mention that in some yeah. uh, aspect of, of radio. It, it's wild. Yeah. And media in general, right? So you yeah. kind of came out of that and it, it's a great program and you still kind of mentor, you know, you've tried to kind of stay in touch with them over the years, right? Yeah. The Emerson Mafia, for those that aren't familiar, it's, uh, it's basically, it's the term for the alumni of Emerson College in Boston, who, you know, a lot of colleges talk about their alumni connections, whatever. Emerson has a mafia. We are a large, especially when it comes to like TV and film, uh, more so than the radio side of things. There is a lot of alumni in that area. And we historically go out of our way to help other Emerson alums at all possible means. A great example is, you know, my wife, when she uh, moved out to Los Angeles in 1992 and was looking for a job, wrote a letter to the guy who was doing publicity uh, over for Paramount, a guy named John Wentworth, and, you know, just mentioned that she was an Emerson person. Of course, he was, I think he was class of 81. And he called around and, you know, and said, okay, you should hire some. Then the, her first job in PR was at a receptionist at a PR, at a publicity firm uh, that was one of his clients. 
specifically because somebody sent him a resume that had the word Emerson on it. So, you know, and you said with Kendall too. I mean, there's there's a lot of us, Chris from XPN, uh, on the industry side, Erica, Q Prime. There's a ton of us that have uh, been part of, I mean, even Eric Hutchinson on the music side of things. You know, there's a lot of us that have that Emerson Mafia background, and we are proud to flaunt it and help, help uh, each other out. <laughs> when did you know you kind of wanted to go there? And, you know, I'm assuming you came out of the music program there in, in some... No, no, actually, I was, I grew up outside of San Francisco uh, in a town called Mill Valley, California. When I started looking at schools, one of the main schools that I looked at, wanted to look at was Boston University. And I was so gung-ho early. I was going to apply early decision and all of these things. And uh, my mom took me on a tour of some of the other schools that I applied to, American University down in D.C. And then she, while we were going to BU, I mean, literally, I had my application in hand ready to go for BU. My mom said, well, we're going to be in Boston. Why don't we check out that Emerson School that sent you a brochure, too? And I'm like, right. okay, fine. <laughs> and... Uh, we did the tour of BU, and there were 75 people on the tour. It was in a, The tour guide had a blue Boston University tour guide blazer. We couldn't check out the dorm rooms because the kids were studying, and I got interviewed by a lovely student in Cashmere and Post. Went to Emerson. There were four people on the tour. The tour guide was wearing a T-shirt and ripped sweatpants, and she stopped the tour to talk to her friends. And I said, this is where I want to be. This is me. <laughs> that so made the decision. And, and also part of it was my good friends were a year older than me growing up. And so when they went off to college and I was still in high school, I would make them mixtapes and I would play around and like record this in my KJS, you know, and make these stupid mixtapes of me talking while I was walking around the neighborhood and then insert songs and then send them off to my friends. So I, you know, had a feeling I wanted to do something with radio at college and yeah. be you. You know, they said, well, you can't really touch the equipment until junior year. And the girl at Emerson was like, yeah, you can have an airship within a couple of weeks after you walk on campus. I'm like, oh, that sounds great. Sure. So uh, Emerson has two radio stations or, you know, I think they still do. But they, at the time, uh, WECB was your typical uh, college alternative station, but also at the time was a uh, carrier current station. So the only place you could technically hear it was uh, either in the dorms or the dining hall. Sometimes not even there. <laughs> Most of the time we were talking to ourselves. Um, and then, so I, I started at ECB uh, at Emerson, basically, like I said, within a few weeks of being on campus and uh, had these Saturday morning 6 to 9 a.m. shift. Nice. So, you know, every, every college student's dream to have an early Saturday morning shift, right. you know, on the air at a station no one's actually listening to. Uh, but it was a ton of fun and I learned a lot. And, uh, and then two floors below it was WERS, which is the big multi-state huge stick FM signal that comes out of Emerson that's still doing great today and is now actually part of the AAA panel today. At the time, it was uh, block programming. So we had 6 to 11 a.m. folk and acoustic, 11 to 2 jazz, 2 to 5 world music, 5 to 8 reggae, 8 to 11 hip hop, 11 to 2 hardcore. Uh, so the, the music got harder as the day went on. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I started as like a fill-in on the, the, you know, an assistant on the hip hop show and then did a little bit helping out with the jazz show. And then eventually for my senior year, I was uh, running the, the coffee house, which was the 6 to 11 a.m. morning show. But at the same time, also doing all four years at ECB. So, but you said studying music program, I was actually an advertising major. Okay. So my degree is in advertising and PR. 
Uh, and actually, after, after college, that's what I did. I went into the advertising business before going to music business. Well, what was it about Boston then? You seem to have an affinity for that town, just kind of knowing that you wanted to cross country to, to go to school. Huh? You know, I had never been there uh, before going to look at the schools. BU was what attracted me to it. And I, I grew up outside of San Francisco, but I was born in um, just outside of New York City. And my okay. parents were both New York, New Jersey area. I'm definitely an East Coaster at heart. And so the concept of the East Coast was nothing too unusual to me. Uh, my relatives were on the East Coast. So, you know, come to visit them, no big deal. But I really never had an affinity for Boston, per se. I would say the only connection I really had was I was a baseball card collector growing up. Yeah, and me too. <laughs> for some reason, you know, and you always latch on to one particular player. You want all their cards. And for some reason, this little kid living outside of San Francisco latched on to Carly Stramski. And so I had every Collier Stramski card. And yeah. my mom would take me every time the Red Sox would come and play the A's in Oakland. My mom would take me and we would go and she would get tickets on the left side of the field. And, and then we'd go and I would go, I would watch the A's play. So, you know, I grew up like being a San Francisco Giants fan as a kid, but also like, you know, hardcore Yastrzemski fan. So I always followed the Red Sox a bit, even growing up outside of San Francisco, just because of him. Huh. And so, I mean, he was gone by the time that I came to college yeah. uh, in 87. He, you know, he was gone a few years before that, but still had that Boston fascination in me and, you know, always loved the city after I got there. Yeah, I, I definitely remember watching him play. And Keith Hernandez was that guy for me where I just had some kind of fascination with him and, and sort of yeah. followed him even when he left St. Louis. You know, that broke my heart because my family is diehard Cardinal fans up and down, you know. <laughs> aunts uncles cousins everybody but uh i'm yeah. like nope i'm going with the mets and then they they win the world series you know with the crazy 86 season but uh you know then he gets in all kinds of trouble gets basically kicked out of, of baseball and uh so i had to kind of find a new team so i went with the chicago white Sox at that time and oh, nice. sort of stuck with them you know it, it's tough to follow them because they're just such a fraught uh, franchise in so many ways but uh yeah I've become a hardcore Sox fan over the years, you know, living here for, you, oh, know, yeah. you know, come to college, but then moved to LA, then moved to New York, but then back up here in 2003. Uh, so, you know, I, we moved back up here to the town that my wife grew up in a year before, you know, the 04 end of the curse. And so, you know, watching all that is they're like, okay, it was a good time to jump back in the pool. <laughs> no kidding, man. And the Patriots run, they, they went on. I mean, just an incredible yeah. time for Boston sports and Celtics coming back and everything. So my son was born in 2000 and him being a Boston sports fan, it's like, you know, for the kids that were born in that era, I mean, they don't know anything <laughs> but championships. <laughs> and you have the stories of all those years of heartbreak going, you know, other than the Celtics and stuff, you know, all those years of heartbreaks leading up to it. And, uh, and he's like, yeah, what? we just win every year. That's what we do. Right. <laughs> so you get out of college then and you're, are you thinking a certain aspect of PR that you wanted to go into? Cause obviously it took uh, a little was, while for you to form your own company, right? When I was at Emerson, uh, Emerson has, at the time, two abroad programs. One was actually out of the country. One was in the country. Uh, their one outside of the country is actually at a castle in Holland. You live and go to school at a medieval castle in the middle of Holland. The other one is the Emerson Los It's It's amazing. It absolutely is one of the greatest experiences in the world. The other one, it was the, uh, the Los Angeles program that Emerson has, where you go and you take a semester and they, did, they would put you up at corporate housing, uh, furnished apartments, and you would take classes in an office building and you would do an intern in your field. 
And so I ended up doing that my junior year of college and interned at an ad agency in Los Angeles. And then when I graduated, I graduated in, in three and a half years instead of four, because the only way I could fit both the castle in LA into my program was to do the castle over the summer. So I did that one summer. And so I wow. ended up finishing in three and a half years, went home to San Francisco and thought, I really enjoyed being in radio stuff. So let me go try to get a job in radio right away. And the only job that I kind of had thrown my way was uh, to drive the van for the radio station uh, that broadcast the A's games and to drive around Harry Elefante, the A's mascot, for five bucks an hour. Uh, and that was not the radio gig I was looking for, uh, <laughs> you know, and then I was trying to decide what I was going to do. And I went down to, I drove down to LA to go visit a friend of mine who was on the LA program for that next semester. And the people there were like, yeah, well, we're going to need a new assistant. You want to just move back down to, you want to move down to LA and be our assistant. So I had no other job. So I went to go be an assistant at the Emerson Los Angeles program. And then, but my, the agreement with my father was that, you know, I had, I got this degree in advertising. I had an inclination towards doing like copywriting. And he said, you're going to go take copywriting classes and continue doing that if you're going to go down to LA. So I did. And I worked as an assistant there and I took copywriting courses and I entered the LA student competition and ended up getting uh, an award for that. But that night that they had the awards thing, I took a look at all of the different students that won the award and all the work that was being done in LA at the time by students. And, you know, you have those moments in your life that's a complete crisis of confidence where you just lose all confidence in yourself whatsoever. And I looked around the room, I said, I'm not this good. Uh, and I just stopped looking and I stopped trying to do copywriting. Hmm. Uh, and I gave up that night. But the agency that I had interned for back a year earlier when I was in LA, my old boss in the traffic department over there called me up one day and he said, hi, I don't know where you're working right now, but quit and come work with me. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, okay, sure. So I went to go work at Foot Cone and Belding in Los Angeles doing traffic. And the side part of the story is that uh, my father made a very nice career in advertising himself and was the founder of a big pharmaceutical ad agency that was owned by, as a parent company, the company, the agency that I was working for. But most people, we did not talk about it. Most people did not put two and two together. We were 500 miles apart, you know. But uh, the creative director walked into my office one day and said, um, I heard you wanted to be a copywriter one day. I ran into your dad. I'm like, yeah, I did, but I gave it up. And he said, well, you still want to do it? And I said, yeah, sure. Cause at that point I was kind of bored. So he had me doing copywriting and eventually, you know, led into that for a while. The quick backstory, and I'm trying to try not to drag this out for you. When I started to get bored doing traffic, I said, well, let me try to get back in the radio end of things or the rate or a record company. Uh -huh. And got offered a job at Scott Shannon's Pirate Radio uh, yeah. back, back in LA. But the job offer was uh, $5 an hour to answer phones and overnights. <laughs> so, you know, I'm like, yeah, no, no, not so much. But the only, the, you know, on the label side of things, the only source that I had, because there wasn't an internet at that point to really work off of, uh, the only source I had, somebody had given me a label directory from Polestar. 
that had basically it was literally just a list of people who worked at record companies mm-hmm. and there you know mm-hmm. and so i spent about a year and a half sending out probably 120 cold resumes and cover letters saying hi please tell me if you're hiring this is my background i worked in college radio too and i would love to work with you know talk to you and and really took the advice of a lot of people and sought out informational interviews and met up with a, a bunch of people and always asked for somebody else to talk to, interviewed for a few jobs, and then uh, came in second place for two jobs at AM, both of which the people that ended up getting hired were hired from inside. And I always appreciate that to promote from within. Yeah. So I never felt bad, yeah. you know, getting beat out by somebody who was already inside the building. But then now, fast forward to the copywriting thing, as soon as I finally left the traffic department and got hired on as a full-time copywriter at Foot Cone and Belding, Los Angeles, writing commercials for Mattel Toys. Two weeks later, A&M called. And the, the head of the department, who I had already interviewed with for a different job, said, called HR and said, this job's opening up, call Jesse. So I ended up going in, interviewing him. The funny part about this job is it sort of credits back to, remember Sherry O'Terry on Saturday Night Live? Oh, yeah. I'm in the music business because of Sherry O'Terry going to do comedy. Uh, she was the assistant at A&M. She was the assistant. And when she left to go to the Groundlings to do comedy full time, that opened up the job at A&M that I took. Wow. Uh, and so in 1994, I left. I went from in advertising, having an assistant to work in music and being an assistant and going back down the ladder, but starting, starting from fresh and working for J.B. Brenner and Mike Ritberg, who have both you know, done very well. Yeah. Taking you back to driving the van around for the uh, the Oakland yeah. station with the A's mascot. Was this during the Bash Brothers period, this, or this was a little bit before that? This, I mean, I'm trying to remember the timing on this. I mean, this would have been very beginning of 1991. Yeah. So that was kind of the heyday there. No, I mean, I, I, never, I didn't take the job. I didn't take the job. It was oh, just one of those like, well, this is the only thing we have available. I'm like, yeah, no, 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 no. I'm oh, going to keep man. looking. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I, mean, I was hoping to get out of college and have a job that paid me more than five bucks an hour. I mean, look, at that time, you know, at that time I was 21 years old. And, yeah. you know, the idea at that age uh, was, you know, and if you try to get a job where you're at least making your age. It took me probably until I was about 22, 23 to have a job where I made my age in terms of, you know, $22,000, $23,000 a year. Yeah. Um, you know, but at $5 an hour, that was never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing. That's what I started at in radio was I think four seventy five maybe. And uh, yeah. yeah, it was a it was a big deal when we crossed that five five twenty five. You know, inched oh, up yeah. there after about you know two three four years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now the only hourly job I ever had was uh, working at Crate and Barrel in high school and college. Okay. <laughs> Well, my other question about that time period is, so growing up as a kid in, in the Bay Area, were you yeah. a big listener of K-Fog or did K-Fog have any kind of presence in your life? Uh, or? I was actually, I was a popping off guy. And so like, you know, my first station that I can really remember listening to as a kid was KFRC with Dr. Don Rose, the top 40 station there. Okay. Uh, and then we had in high school, the rock station KRQR which I remember like, you know, one of their main 
advertising points in high school was that they were playing all CDs. It's <laughs> like, ooh, you're playing CDs. <laughs> this is cool. You must be new technology. Uh, and then, like, you'd also listen to uh, Alex Bennett did the morning show on the Quake. He was one of the first DJ. He was the first DJ ever like knew that would invite people into the studio. And so like we would go when I was in high school and go stand on the side of the room while Alex Bennett was doing his show. And and then eventually, you know, for me being you know a kid of like eighties alternative, uh, Live One Hundred Five. Those were my stations back then, more leaning from directly from pop into alternative. A lot of that coming from you know MTV at the time. I mean, because we were definitely part of the MTV generation. Yeah. So. You know, we're going from the pop side of things during the day to, you know, 120 minutes on the weekends. And that mm-hmm. was definitely, you know, learning the alt side of things. Did you uh, see? And that was a great place to get an interest in music. Yeah. What, what were some of the cool shows? Did you see some at the, the Fillmore and stuff or did you not go? I didn't go out much when I was in high school. You know, yeah. I mean, I, we didn't, you know, I remember seeing like concerts more than shows, you know, and stuff like that. So like the stuff that I saw in high school was like, Depeche Mode, uh, you know, General Public. Um, God, I'm trying to remember who else here. I mean, the, my, my favorite band growing up was The Police. One of the biggest concerts I saw was, you know, Bill Graham, before there were big station festival shows with multi-artists and stuff like that. In San Francisco, we had Bill Graham's Day on the Green. You know, the first concert I ever went to by choice was 1982 Day on the Green with Journey and Santana and uh, The Tubes, Gamma, and I'm trying to remember what the fifth band was, but I don't remember off the top of my head. Oh, uh, but in 1983, it was the one lineup was the police, the fix, the Thompson twins. I think it was Berlin and Oingo Boingo, if I remember wow. correctly. Damn, I, mean, I could be remembering this wrong, but I rem- I definitely know it was the fix, the police, the Thompson twins. Yeah. Uh, so where was but, the green? Is that like downtown or? It was Oakland Stadium. Oh, Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So it was, they would put it, it would be at, yeah. yeah, it would be a stadium show. You'd be on the field. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was exactly what, you know, you see, whether it's anything from the station festival or Bonnaroo to Glastonbury, whatever they're doing now is the festival stuff. That's what Bill Graham was doing with five artists at, at a time Man. back, you know, in the eighties and stuff. And and in terms that you mentioned like, you know, K-Fog and the, the deadheads and stuff like that, yeah. that came at that time. You know, for me growing up, you were either a deadhead or you weren't. Mm-hmm. And there was no, there was no, you know, in between. And I had a lot of friends that were, I just wasn't. I absolutely respect everything the dead have done and everything that, you know, the people have gotten into. I was just never my bag, you know, even yeah. growing up there. Yeah. But, you know, you had a lot of friends that were like the New Year's Eve show is exactly, that was, you knew they were going to be there every time. And they're like, yeah, I'm cool. I'm hanging home. Man, I'm good. We'll just party over here. <laughs> Well, and how, so how much was that five band bill with the police? Was it like a $5 ticket or something? No recall whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> I honestly don't, I don't know. That's a good question. I'll have to see if I can find out how much that, that was at the time. Yeah. Find uh, the ticket somewhere. I mean, That'd be great. Yeah. I mean, but even so, like, even when we started getting a little bit older and being able to go out more, you know, we ended up going clubbing and going dancing more than anything, more than actually going to concerts. So mm-hmm. I ended up going to more, hearing more club music you know and more of that like the new order and stuff like that yeah. at clubs rather than seeing seeing live bands what was the scene like in boston then did, did there's so many great clubs there yeah but in boston I'm trying to think the cars yeah, boston, were huge uh, at that point yeah but boston at the time again it's like there you know it's interesting how great of a college town it was but how little there was for anybody under 21 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, mo I didn't go to a ton of shows during school. I mean, again, the stuff that I went to was concerts because you can get into that stuff. You know, I didn't get, I wasn't a kid who either went to the rat or went dancing at the nine or something like that. I was going to simply read at the Orpheum, you know, mm -hmm. uh, PIL at the Orpheum with flesh for Lulu opening up because a friend of mine worked for the distribution company at the time. So, you know, things like that, I would go see concerts and we would go the venue that used to be called great woods in Mansfield, Massachusetts, about 40 minutes south of Boston, yeah. that was the shed, or still is. It's called the Xfinity Center now. It's about 10 minutes from my house. But at the time, that was where I saw Eric Clapton. That's where I saw Sinead O'Connor, you know, stuff like mm -hmm. that. That's where we ended up seeing a lot of those. So I ended up seeing more, quote unquote, concerts than any kind of club shows at the time. Gotcha. Yeah, we're talking with Jesse Barnett of Right Arm Resource. You can see what he's up to at any given time at rightarmresource.com. Back to your copywriting days, what's one of the more memorable clients or scripts that you uh, that come to mind when you think of that era? Did you try to inject a little bit of humor or was it always kind of top down like you had to sort of follow a... No, well, it was interesting because the agency that I was at at the time, most of the time when you start out in advertising you are doing, you know, you do some tiny print copy and you do some legal copy in a, in a newspaper ad. And then maybe you move up to a mag magazine ad and an outdoor campaign and then a radio, local radio spot and a national radio spot. And then maybe some local television, some national. You never, you have to go really start at the beginning. The agency that I was at, we had only major clients that only pretty much did broadcast advertising. So the only thing I ever did was national television commercials. So I never had any kind of book per se of ads that I had written and, you know, that I could show for magazines or anything like that. All I had was a reel of commercials, which were for the most part, uh, you know, because it was really just like a six month period that I was doing the copywriting thing, uh, Mattel toys, Hot Wheels. So crisscross, crisscross, crash. That was me. Uh, you know, <laughs> very exciting stuff. Uh, but, you know, there was a toy called Street Sharks. There was a, you know, a thing called Floam. There's a Nickelodeon thing maker, I remember. We also had um, Sunkissed Oranges and Farmer's Insurance at the time. So I had written some spots for those that didn't end up getting bought by the client. But in a lot of things in advertising, you know, it's great to get the stuff bought by the client, but the heart that you really need to win over is your boss, the creative director. Yeah. And so the creative director liked my stuff. And so it's like, if Sunkiss is turning it down, okay, but the creative director liked it, so I'm going to keep my job. Right. <laughs> the client doesn't know what they're talking about. You did a good job. Don't worry about it. You know? <laughs> the agency also had like Smokey Bear. Uh, you know, the U.S. Forest Service, you know, in terms of traffic stuff that we weren't writing the ads for, I mean, my big thing that I was running the, the, the traffic stuff for was MGM Pictures. I was tasked with making sure that all of the right commercials are running at the right times with the right, you know, TV and radio stations. So gotcha. that was most of my job leading up to their copywriting stuff. Gotcha. I see. And um, a show like Mad Men, when that really caught fire, I kind of missed the boat on that. Um, I tried to get into it and just never could. I need to go back and watch now from a, you know, the yeah. perspective I have now. But did you get into that pretty hardcore then? <laughs> I, I, did, I did get into Mad Men. And it was funny because, because that, that definitely took place about 20 years before my time, right. 25 years before my time business. 
But as I mentioned, my father was in advertising long before I was. The stories that my dad can tell are, you know, much greater than the stories that I could ever tell on the advertising side of things. I mean, he's got some good ones, you know, and especially because he was working in the, in the 60s in New York City and as a young creative, as an art director, the stories of the people that he worked with and he met, it's just, it's just wild, you know. So, oh, yeah, I, I knew Andy Warhol. Yeah, yeah, oh, I, I know Norman Rockwell. Yeah, okay. Yeah, oh yeah, there was a guy. It's like, oh Jesus! <laughs> yeah. But it's it's terrific. Well, and starting out at A and M, I mean, they were had a pretty storied history. They're not around anymore, as, unless it's been revived. No, they're still around as an imprint. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the main reasons that I was excited to work at A and M was that was the label the Police had been on. You know, and so I mean, at the time, the Police box that had come out, and I was like, oh, you know. <laughs> And uh, you know, we, I came into A&M in the late summer of 94. And at that time, AAA had, you know, just been around as a format for a handful of years, you know, still somewhat being referred to as progressive radio by some people. The two people that I was working for were J.B. Brenner, who had been at A&M for 20 some odd years at that point. Uh, and he was the head of rock and AAA promotion. And then Mike Ritberg, who was about a year and a half older than me, but had really come from like, he'd come from Metal Blade and he was the rock guy. And so Mike was doing rock under JB, JB was doing rock and AAA and I was both of their assistants. About six months in, when I had my six month review, they're like, yeah, we think you're doing a great job. And I'm like, great, I think I'm bored. So they're like, well, you want to call radio? Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks. <laughs> so I uh, ended up starting to call and, you know, call radio. And what I was given at first was about 25 uh, at the time were album network reporters uh, and smaller market guys and, you know, started developing relationships and calling radio and working all the AAA stuff. And so, you know, for the couple of years that I was doing that, it was me and JB doing the AAA side of things and then JB and Mike doing the rock side. I'm thinking and Cheryl Crow and Cheryl Crow Blossoms is. and Blues Remember, you know, and it was it was a great environment to be at. We had a lot of hits uh, during that period of time. You know, my favorite promotion line of all time comes from JB at that time when uh, Blues Travelers Four record was blown up and Runaround was a massive smash. And somebody asked JB how the record was selling, and he said, "It's selling faster than I can lie about it." <laughs> That was one of my favorite lines. <laughs> That's good. Well, and they were a band. I mean, actually, both of those stories, when I, actually all three of them, Jim Blossoms, Blues Traveler, and Cheryl Crow, you know, I always was fond of Cheryl because she came from Columbia, Missouri. She actually went to Mizzou. She had tried her hand at being like a music teacher in St. Louis for a year or two. Gets the gig as a backup singer for Michael Jackson. I mean, and oh, then, right, right, yeah. Next thing you know, like she, she, I think made an album kind of like Tori Amos. She had an album that didn't really go anywhere or got shelved by the label. You know, it was about ready to just give it all up and then falls in with the Tuesday night music club guys. Right. And, but I do remember, I believe it was run baby run, right. Was the first single that didn't really, I don't feel like that went anywhere. And then all I want to do, of course, was the one that, that really, yeah, I, I, I came in, I'm trying to remember like the timeline of it because I came in, I think right after leaving Las Vegas uh, okay. was a hit. So I was, so I came in during the tail end of the Tuesday, my, Tuesday night music club project. For me, the Cheryl stuff, you know, really kicked in with the following record. She was great. She played the first uh, Boulder conference. And that was, I think, when 93, 
I think I started going to Boulder in 96. So, but I remember hearing the stories of, you know, this unknown named Cheryl Crow playing in the tent behind the harvest house. And it's like nobody paying attention, of course, you know, and 80 people there, whatever. But everybody now, you know, of course you have 80 people there that will now, you know, there's 500 people that will tell you they're there. <laughs> yeah. You know, she was just in a cover band called Cashmere at, and during her college days and they would just play classic rock covers basically. Oh, and funny. Um, in the eighties, that was a little before my time, uh, in Columbia, but, um, yeah, it was pretty wild to kind of follow her success. And, and even still today, I think of her as a real trailblazer in terms of, I mean, it's still an issue today, I would say, but you know, back then you really didn't have hardly any females on rock radio. Right. Right. Triple A was a little bit more open to it, but there just weren't that many. And then, you know, Alanis Morissette, I guess would be the one that kind of really blew the doors off in, in 95, sure. but yeah. And Fiona Apple too. Fiona. Yeah. Yeah. And it's great to uh, see all three of them still like, you know, Alanis is winning Tony's right for the, <laughs> the musical. Yeah, yeah. I saw Jack a little pill when it was in a workshop up here in Boston before I went down to New York. It's a oh, great show. You? Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic <laughs> show. But uh, yeah. And I, and I got a chance to promote both Alanis and Fiona Apple this year. So, you know, yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny, like high school and college, Jesse's like, you know, in the beginning of career, Jesse was freaking out this year because there were a lot of bands that I was big, big fans of in my younger years that I got a chance to work with now. And it's, that's been kind of really cool to go back and talk to radio now and say, no, you, they still matter. You should still play them. But yeah, I mean, it was, you know, there were a lot of breaking women back then was in the, in the AAA was, you know, at least the singer songwriter thing lent itself a little bit more to it, I think. But still, I mean, it's still a challenge in times. Yeah. Well, uh, Gin Blossoms too. I mean, that was a band coming out of Arizona. Like what other band has ever come out of Arizona? The Meat Puppets, maybe. <laughs> that was on A&M too. Oh, uh, yeah. And oh, then... no, 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 that wasn't A&M. Excuse me. I No, but I've worked with, uh, I've worked with Meat Puppets now uh, through Megaforce and, and, oh, okay. and their stuff in their recent years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, one of the great power pop albums of the 90s or any other decade, really. I mean, so many hits off of that one. And and Blues Traveler was just kind of a weird, jammy band out of upstate New York, right? My first foray into the Blues Traveler stuff was actually back in college at WERS. Because I remember, like, walking into the studio one day and overhearing this blazing harmonica going and this band just jamming away. And this would have been in like 1989 or 1990. And I see all these people, you walk into the recording studio area of ERS and I see all these people like hovered over the board, looking into the room and you see this band just, just wailing away, but you're hearing their harmonica and you don't see anybody on harmonica. And I poked my friend Cindy, I'm like, hey, where's the guy at harmonica? She points down. I look over the board over the window and Popper had taken the cushions off of the couch in the recording studio, laid them on the ground and was literally doing his job lying down. He was fully horizontal, just full speed, harmonica just blazing and the rest of the band's going. And it's like, I mean, I would lose my breath in two seconds and here literally is a guy doing this fully horizontal on the ground, live on the air. And that, but that was, you know, five years, four or five years before Hook and Runaround and that four album. Yeah. And so I was, I was really excited to, when I got back, when I was able to get to work the stuff, that four album was one of the first records that I got a chance to work uh, when I started calling radio. And so it was, that was a big deal for me to, to get involved in that one at that time. 
when I feel like, yeah, Spin Doctors, Fish, and Blues Traveler, all, all three of them kind of had that, you know, it was almost like they had put so much work in and they had toured so much and then they hit it big. You know, it's always tough to follow up a hugely successful album. Like each of those bands kind of had to do it at various points, but they were built a little better maybe than, than other bands might've been for. Yeah. The only time I saw Spin Doctors was when they, this is, this is like the ultimate early nineties LA reference. I saw the Spin Doctors open for Polly Shore at the Roxy in Los Angeles on the Sunset Strip. And they gave out singles of the track before the show. Oh, Those all are very dated words. Yes. That's hustling right there. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're working and you're opening for Polly Shore show. I mean, come on. He was pretty massive back then too, as I recall. Oh yeah, still absolutely. Don't know why, but Encino <laughs> Man was awesome. <laughs> so, what was it like? I mean, in more recent years, John Popper, I, I feel like has maybe gone the the Billy Corgan route of just like, "What are you doing, man? I, I don't yeah, quite I, I, uh, know what he's up to uh, or where he lost yeah, the paddle." I haven't been, the way, I haven't been but... following too closely. You know, I mean, it's it's sort of. A, Look, I mean, it's like radio gets a lot of music. We work a lot of music and it's like, it sort of falls in the category of if it's not something I can get on the radio, I don't have time to, to focus too hard on it right now. Yeah, I'd love to listen for sport, but sometimes that doesn't happen. Well, and that's with this podcast, I'm trying to explain to people too, like, you know, the team behind that's working with the label or, you know, it could even be on the management side sometimes. Like you're not necessarily in meetings all the time with the actual artists. Like you're not out on tour with them a lot of times. I mean, you're just, you're, you're trying to get their music played and trying to get exposure yeah. to the band in general. But, you know, how often were you really kind of in the meetings with the artists themselves? Very little. You know, and I mean, A&M, I was, I was an assistant there and then eventually, you know, ended up doing a lot of the AAA side of things. But, you know, I didn't have a lot of artists interaction too much there and you know to some extent i know you know Attaway mentioned this a bit on when you were talking to him sometimes i prefer that because they can take stuff really personally and it's you know there's almost there's a benefit to having an intermediary there that's that you're being you know that you're really telling the truth to and uh so when i left a and m in 97 i went to go work for a little label in uh new york city called hybrid and at the time, our big record was Guster's Gold. I mean, we had a woman named Sherry Jackson, but the big record that came out of there was uh, Guster's Goldfly album. And that was, you know, between Sherry Jackson and Guster, that's really when the first time that I did stuff on the road and went and went on the road with the artist, drive around for two weeks at a time in a car with you and the artist and nobody else and, and visiting radio and, okay, we've done our 20 minutes here. Let's go on to the next one, you know, <laughs> uh, and did that. So there was definitely at Hybrid when I was co-running the promotion over there, there was a lot more artist interaction. You know, we had a band named Martin's Dam uh, out of the Pennsylvania area. We had a guy named Mike Errico, who was a terrific guy who I still keep in touch with. We had some cool artists at the time. We were owned by uh, John Sher's Metropolitan Entertainment, which was a major concert promoter in New York. So while we were a small label, we had some healthy backing. And they were a management company as well. So, you know, we still got our calls taken, even though we were a tiny label at the time. But yeah. that, was, that was the first time uh, that I really spent time on the road with artists and dealing with them one-on-one. Well, I bet there were some good Boston stories going around the, the car then with you and the, the Guster guys, right? 
Yeah, well, they were, I mean, we were all young at the time and they were just out of Tufts. And I was, you know, I was, I'd been out for like six, seven years. So there wasn't a ton of that. I mean, it was very much almost like parent child stuff to a little bit. Oh, really? they, were, they were kids. And it, yeah. it's kind of funny now that like I ran into Ryan and, and Boulder a couple of years ago and, you know, to see those guys now that their families are so important to them and their kids are so important to them and stuff like that. And, and how it's become that kind of enterprise. It's, it's interesting to see sort of the, I mean, they, at the age they were then were basically a couple of years older than my son is now, you know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, we definitely, there was definitely some fun there. It was uh, my favorite Guster memory though was, um, yeah, I know you guys have been mentioning a little bit between both Mel and, uh, and Nick mentioned Semisonic, uh, uh, you know, in the podcast back in the late nineties, I think it was in 98 when, when closing time was just through the roof, crazy. Uh, I took Guster to, we were driving from Atlanta to Birmingham to go do an, an interview with the Alt Station there. And we heard closing time twice on the station on the way in from Atlanta. And it was just like, really? Twice in 90 minutes, right? Okay, come on. And uh, I remember after the interview, they asked uh, the guys in Guster to cut some liners for the station. And, you know, they flipped on the mic and said, hi, this is Adam and this is Ryan and we're from Guster. And when we're in Birmingham and we want to hear Semisonic, we turn on 107X. <laughs> the guy that's like, oh, crap. And they just looked at me like, seriously, dude, come on. <laughs> but they were some of the nicest, funniest guys I've ever had the chance to work with. And I've connected with them a few times over the years at various, uh, you know, whether it was the Life is Good Festival or back in Boulder or, you know, when they played in Boston for their anniversary show, re you know, a couple of years ago. I've also gotten the chance to shoot them a couple of times. So that was cool, you know, both at their anniversary show and off the uh, uh, Grace Potter's uh, Grand Point North Festival up in Vermont. Nice. So. Yeah, we've got Jesse Barnett of Right Arm Resource here with us on the Radio Friendly Unit Shifters podcast. And I want to talk to him about starting his own company and taking us kind of into the 21st century here and uh, all these great artists he's been able to, to work with, how he decides on who he works with and, you know, look ahead to what is in store for next year. And also might need to pick his brain about how to raise a, uh, a theater kid. Because I know he's got he's got one of those, and I think I've got one too. Some of my hands. So, <laughs> all right. So hang on, and we'll uh, we'll be right back here on the podcast. We're back with more from Jesse Barnett. He is from Right Arm Resource. And what year was it then that you actually started this? I was in hybrid. Uh, I lost my job at the end at the end of '98, and then. Uh, the reality for most people who do independent promotion right now is they do it because they lost their labor jobs. The one thing you walk out of, they can take away your desk, but they can't take away your Rolodex, you know? And so you've got all these relationships. Uh, and then you know, it's like, well, I can get to people. I just need records to talk about. And so you get in hybrid doing independent promotion. A few months after I lost my job at hybrid, Michael Ehrenberg, who's done independent promotion for a long, long time, but he was doing it by himself he agreed to bring me on and partner up with him. And so I worked for Michael for uh, four years and then got wooed away uh, in 2003 from Chris Stacy over at Vector. He had started a independent promotion company within the building of Vector Management uh, in Nashville. And so we were, basically it was an independent promotion company that uh, would also act as the in-house promotion department 
for anything that was that vector management had artists going out or vector records. So like on the management side, it would be like John Hyatt and, uh, and Mary Shapen Carpenter. And then on the record side, we had Damien Rice's O record on vector records at the time. So we ended up being the in-house promotion department for that. In addition to being an outside independent promotion company, there were three of us there when I started at vector and I was on a salary a couple years later, one person had left. Chris went up and did went into the management arm of it full time, and I was left being the only person in the promotion company on a salary of about one third of the billing. <laughs> I was like, "Well, there's something wrong with the math there." Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, did some soul searching, sat down with a couple of my friends who were, you know, decent business executives, and really walked through the idea of starting my own company. I don't know if you remember uh, Sean O'Connell. Uh, oh, yeah. runs music, music allies and creative allies down in North Carolina. A couple months before I decided to go on my own, I had seen Sean at the non-com conference in, Louis, in, the, in Philly, picked his brain. I said, look, I'm thinking about going on my own. You've started your own company. What do I need to know? What am I being stupid and not thinking about? And he, the piece of advice that he gave me was come up with a mission statement be able to have a mission statement that you can look back on and base decisions for your business on. And if it doesn't match up with that mission statement, then you know not to do it. And I thought that was terrific advice if somebody was able to come up with a mission statement. And unfortunately I wasn't, but I called up Sean a couple months. I, I, I called up Sean a couple months later and I said, all right, I couldn't come up with a mission statement, but I came up with rules. And so I came up with the three defining rules of right arm resource that I've still lived by to this day. Rule number one, don't work records that suck. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes easier than, to say than it's that. Right, right. Uh, rule number two, don't fuck over your clients. And rule number three, which really harkens back to rule number one, make tomorrow's money, not today's. My point is like, if I work, 50 records over the course of the year. For somebody to do that, sometimes you have to have 50 clients to do that. That would kill me. Right. Uh, you know, for me to work 50 records over the course of the year, I want to have a dozen clients. And so my business that I've structured for the last 15 years has been long-term relationships with clients, working multiple projects for them that I have a great working relationship with over the course of the year. And if I take on a record just because somebody wants to give me a check right now, Attaway said it in, the, in podcast view. If the record fails, it's your fucking fault, you know? And uh, so if I take on a record and it fails, I get the check today. Sure. Right. But I never get hired again mm -hmm. by that client. But if I turn down the wrong records and take on the right ones and we succeed, well, then I'll get hired for 10 projects over the course of the next three years from that client. Yeah. So that's really where the make tomorrow's money, not today's concept comes from. And it really has been, probably the biggest driving force for me over the, the last 15 years, because I do on an annual basis, turn down more projects than I take on. Hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of that has to do with, I don't necessarily think, you know, the old Saturday Night Live, they're not ready for primetime players. You know, I mean, there's some of these records that come out. It's like, it's not worth your money to spend on a national campaign. If, you know, the return on the investment's not going to be there hmm. with the result that if you've been doing this long enough, you can kind of foretell where it's going to land, how it's going to do. Yeah. You know, that's been, that's been the driving force for the last 15 years. 
Well, and over these uh, last handful of years, how have you seen things change or how have they changed for you at all in terms of who you talk to? Or are you dealing with anybody from the streaming services or are you dealing more directly like with management or? From the promotion standpoint to who I'm promoting to, uh, it hasn't really changed. Uh, you know, it's still, I still am exclusively for AAA. Uh, that's the only format I do. I'm still exclusively dealing with all of the actual chart reporters. You know, I still focus on the people who make up the airplay chart because there's, you know, right, I think right now my count that I deal with is like 118 stations. That's enough. You know, uh, I mean, I've, I've looked at ways to expand outward from there and maybe another time, another day, you know, whatever is, if things go away, you know, then sure. But, uh, you know, but for the most part, um, you know, the, the people that I talk to have stayed the same. Uh, on the client side of things, I've seen, you know, more and more there, where there's management companies that are doing stuff themselves. Their artists are self-releasing. And so I get hired by the management company. I mean, this past year, Pete Yorn. I was hired directly by the management company on Pete Yorn. I know Nick mentioned Doty, you know, I mean, Nick was, you know, Nick talked about going to the top with the first Doty single back way back when he hired me, Nick hired me on that one. So I was part of the team that worked that one. <laughs> and uh, I've been, no matter what label Doty stuff has been on, I've been the Mike Doty radio guy ever since then. Uh, and so my relationship in getting hired with him was directly with the management end of things, mm -hmm. you know, and Megaforce, which was distributing the record. But for the most part, my main point of contact for Mike Doty has always been his management end of things and Mike himself. But for the most part, it's still the labels that are, are the ones hiring me. Uh, I still have a very consistent client base of people that it's like, okay, here's the five things coming up. Boom, boom, boom. It's like, great. Okay, cool. And, and like, when I say I turned down a lot of projects, it's mostly the people that I haven't worked with that I turned down because the people that I have worked with know what I'm good at, know the type of records that fit what I do and who, you know, and who I talk to. Uh, and so they're not really coming to me with the, my regular clients aren't coming to me with records that aren't my a fit for me. They know which ones are anyway. So your ears are kind of, tune in like a, a program directors would be to, you know, all the music that comes into any given radio station on a daily basis. We're, we're trying to figure out what fits our particular market and our station the best for someone like you, you're, you're filtering it through. Okay. You're not even really looking at it necessarily personal preference so much as these are things that I know fit my kind of brand and my the sound that I typically yeah. bring to stations and they're going to work on the radio, right? I remember speaking at a non-com conference years ago and Dan Reed over at XPN asking me at a panel, he said, you can't possibly like every record you work. <laughs> and my answer back was very honest, which was, I don't have to like it. I have to believe you can play it. And it's like, <laughs> my personal tastes have nothing to do with the records I work. Uh, you know, I mean, my personal tastes, you know, I'm a kid of the 80s, you know, I, I and my daughter does musical theater, I, you know, number high up on my Spotify summary end of the year list was show tunes, you know, I mean, I listen to NPR and sports radio. So it's like, it may not be my thing, but I have to believe radio can play it. And that's where it sort of comes in on, you know, choosing the project thing. But as you know, you talk about how like things have changed what radio is going to play and what AAA is going to play has definitely changed over the years. I mean, you back in the nineties, it was, you know, much more, you know, John Hyatt and David Wilcox and John Gorka were, were part of the format, but that's not the case anymore. And, you know, and then you went into more of like, 
a bit of a rock sound, more of an AC sound. And then you had that period of the late 2000s, as I refer to the period where everybody named Matt or Josh put out a record at the same time. You know, you had the, the that was the time also with like the very sync friendly, the commercial friendly singer songwriter stuff. Uh, I was involved with, you know, the Ingrid Michaelson, The Way I Am campaign. So I was a big part of that too. But over the time, things have shifted. And now with the resurgence of alternative radio, you know, you're back at AAA where you're mostly you're looking at things that are either brand name that people have a history with, or if they're not, they're things that have a bit of an alt lean to them. You know, there's always, you talk about like, you know, each individual market. I've long said that AAA is just a a bunch of stations that are thrown together to have just enough in common with each other because you've got some stations that lean, that are, you know, in smaller markets that are double duty as the top 40 and the AAA. You've got some stations that are almost pure Americana. You've got some stations that are almost alternative, you know. And so it really is adult niche. It's what's missing for adults in each individual market. The challenge is taking on records that you think can get on enough of those stations to make, you know, to make it worthwhile. Uh, And so, I mean, generally, you know, the stuff that I work is the stuff that is somewhat mainstream, you know, I mean, and has the ability to cross, you know, to, to be sort of, you know, the high tally records for the most part. I mean, like the, the Fiona Apple, you know, the Alanis Morissette records. I mean, these are, these were artists who hadn't heard from a while, but they were both mainstream records, you know, in terms of the ability to have those conversations. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like you've, taken on your fair share of independent artists too maybe can you relate the independent artist struggle to maybe the the major label because i feel like in recent years and i guess it's been a while a little while now but kind of the ideal arrangement is is a band like uh that can get distribution from the major label side but can still kind of maintain their own sort of uh vision what they want to do and and maybe their own independent spirit, if you will, if they're not necessarily on an independent label per se. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've seen some of the bigger artists really in recent years kind of branch out to that kind of arrangement where they're controlling, whether it's their masters or, you know, things like that. Every artist from the beginning of of rock and roll has, has wanted to try and keep as much of their own money as they can. It's a very hard thing to do in the music industry, as you well know. So uh, I thought you could speak to that, like a Haley Knox. She just blew us away, you know, when she came here to Charlottesville and did her looping, you know, one woman band kind of thing where she plays, you know, all these amazing riffs on the guitar and, and loops her voice and she's able to be her own orchestra, basically. So somebody like that comes to you and did she already have kind of an existing online following or? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm hired directly by the label on her. So mm-hmm. you know, she didn't come to me. I'm, I'm hired by S-Curve on that one. Um, you know, and so the label and I have been talking about finding, again, finding the right project to work together for a while. And I know she had had uh, the hardwired track out about, you know, beginning of 2019 that did pretty well at AAA. Uh, and so, okay, we've got some, we've got a base of, of support that we can go back to now. Let's see what we can do with the new one with the boy named Pluto. We've got a very cool video that goes along with it. She's been doing regular streams. She's doing the American Songwriter podcast. It's like, okay, which of these tools can we do? But because she, you know, yes, she had a single that did well, but because she's not a name brand artist, it is knocking on doors one by one and convincing stations one by one. But as you, you know, it's interesting. You just pointed out, like when she came in, she blew you away. 
And I just talked to a station in Roanoke uh, this morning. And same thing, like they, they're playing the Haley Knox and they absolutely loved her. And when she came in, oh my God, it was so amazing. We're such a huge fan. And she sang a jingle for us for the station and we use it as a bumper, you know, and that's great. But the last nine months have taken that tool away. Yeah. Uh, when you have a major artist, when you're doing a radio campaign for him, of course, you're right. You're, you know, you're trying to blow it up the chart. You're trying to get as much cumulative stuff as you can. You know, but when you're a smaller or developing or an independent artist, the reality is that's almost all the time. That's not going to happen. You know, most AAA campaigns for developing artists is about, okay, let's take a step back. If we can just all agree that we're not going to, that the end goal is not going to blow this thing up a chart and make this a multi-format hit because you don't have the money, you don't have the time, you know, whatever, and you don't have the tools. What are our goals? And, you know, so often pre-COVID, the goal was to go out and make friends. And the goal is, you can say, okay, the goal of this campaign is to go make 25 friends, 25 stations who get you, who understand you, who believe in you, who th say, yes, this is totally worth the airplay. And then super serve them in terms of visits and coming by the market and your tour markets and things like that. Uh, and liners. And then when you have a next single or an XDP or a next album, you've got 25 friends you can count on. Oh, let's go try to get 10 more. Let's go get 15 more. And now we've got 40 stations. And all of a sudden, you've grown this base and the other stations who still haven't played are starting to see, hey, I, I keep seeing that band come back around and whatever. It's hard now because so much of what AAA has done for developing artists has been the in-studios. You know, and you've done so many of those yourself over the years, whether it's yeah. a BXR or the corner, you have these artists that come in and you have these 20 minute conversations and two songs acoustic and you're, and then you flip off the mic and you're hanging out for 20 minutes in the lobby and bullshitting. And it's like, that's where it comes from. You know, Haley Knox sitting across from me, just, you know, just completely going, yeah. you know? I mean, Joe Arthur does that with the looping stuff and, and uh, you know, Howie Day does that stuff. And so there's, there's other artists that do that. Thing, but when you see it in person, when you see an artist take that on, it's amazing. And you want to be their fan. And whatever they send you next, yeah, of course I'm going to play that. We love them. They came by here, whatever. That tool has been taken away. And so it's been much tougher on developing artists this year. The one piece of advice I always give really the startup bands of things, the, uh, you know, is take a look at a map, put a pin in your market where you live, draw a 500 mile circle around it. That's the only part of the country you should be focused on uh, because everything else are markets that you're never going to get to until you make this your full-time job. And for most developing bands, it's not their full-time job. This is something they do on the weekends. And they're, you know, if you have a 500 mile radius, fine, you can go drive there on a Friday and get there and play a Saturday show or whatever, you know, and you can make relationships with the concert promoters in those towns. And when they get into you, you get in with the radio stations and it comes sort of becomes this circle that you can really count on for support. And then they call their friends because they know other bookers in the region and whatever. And you really develop that 500 mile radius. That's what's going to give you the chance to then say, okay, we can consistently sell out within 500 miles of our market. Let's now go to a thousand and let's, or let's try Now we have the ability, we've got 
some, you know, our booker recommend us to a booker on the West Coast, let's go do West Coast run, you know, and really build out from there. But that's, you know, between the making the friends thing and the drawing or, and drawing the radius, those are the two biggest things I always give for independent artists that are trying to create a niche for themselves and create a dent and, and try to get some airplay. Yeah, and I appreciate that because I, I was going to, you know, ask you about that in terms of what I could tell, you know, I sort of have my spiel that I tell the the artists that I'm such a fan of around here that, you know, they've made great albums, they put on great shows, that some of them have more means than others to to make those, you know, long drives in up and down the East Coast. But um, it's almost like I try not to crush their dreams too much, <laughs> but it is... Yeah. Like, the radio piece is almost the last thing. Well, and, that, and that's, you know, puzzle, that's, right? look, I get that all the time. And I, radio is literally the last link in the chain because I live in the suburbs. Not a lot of people here in the entertainment business. You know, it's not like living in LA or anything like that. And, you know, it's, oh, what do you do? Oh, well, I, you know, I do music promotion. You know, my daughter sings, you know, yep. and you always had the response of, and I bet she's got a beautiful voice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, my daughter sings too, but you know, I don't have like in her on the radio, but it is, you know, trying to couch that, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it is the expectations definitely have to be managed. Um, and for most artists that are independent that want national radio campaigns, the best advice would be don't. And I hate to say that, you know, for a national campaign. Right. Yeah. I mean, radio is, you know, especially this year with the amount of times that time that they're spending in music meetings, sometimes music meetings that used to be an hour and a half in person at a radio station among four staffers are somebody putting together a Spotify playlist and three people emailing their top choices from the Spotify playlist and seeing if any of them match up. <laughs> and that's the whole conversation. You know, or you've got programmers that are working by email only right now that it's a one-way email and you're not getting response back. So you're not getting an artist the feedback that they need to, you know, to, to really see whether it's worth it or not. Uh, and so this has been a definitely challenging year. And even then, like, there's been so many big projects that have dropped in this year. Then playlists are shrinking in terms of the amount of new records they're adding. So when all of a sudden you think you've got a shot for a developing artist and somebody big drops a song out of nowhere you're like well there goes that slot you know yeah. so we're out of business i mean look i've also been the beneficiary of some of those records too i gotta say probably the most rewarding record that i've worked personally this year uh has been the taylor swift for no other reason than it really you know we are we're in the relationship business and we are in the marketing business you know and we have conversations with people. That's why I love music calls is like just the ability to really get into these deep conversations about music and the long, you know, and, and strategy and stuff with radio. And the Taylor Swift was a real blast to work because it really opened up the door to some philosophical conversations with radio about what you will and won't play, why you will and won't play something. Could you play something? Would you take a chance on something? And, uh, you know, I mean, if I had told someone at the beginning of July that, hey, I was going to be working the new Taylor Swift, they would have laughed me out the door. Yeah. But when Exile shows up out of nowhere and it becomes, hi, you've received the new Taylor Swift, let's discuss. 
you know, and all of a sudden everything's happening at once, it becomes a different conversation. But it was a lot of fun this year having the Taylor Swift conversation. And again, going back to some of the artists we were talking about before, having the Fiona Apple conversation. Where has she been? Does she still matter? Having the Alanis Morissette conversation. I worked the Go-Go's this year. You know, I mean, some of my all-time favorite things, I'm like, this is, I was giddy to be able to, I mean, you know, I worked the Semisonic this year, you know? <laughs> yeah, and what's yeah. funny is, I mean, I remember Mel talking about You're Not Alone and how important that was this year during everything. I've had that song since 2018. That wasn't written this year, you know? <laughs> so it was great to get those, some of those conversations going. That is funny. I've probably it, gotten off topic. I'm sorry. No, no, that's it's great. I, I love these just kind of tangent conversations we get on on this thing. Uh, that's what podcasts are for, right? So yeah. timing is a lot of it too, even for a, an established artist who's had hits. You know, they come forth with this new thing. Maybe like Fiona hasn't been heard from in years. So radio almost treats them like a, either a brand new artist or they're so old and washed up that, oh, we don't have any need for you anymore, right? Do you, yeah, do, yeah. Does that drive and, you know, a little bonkers? <laughs> it, it absolutely does because, you know, I had a couple of artists that are like that that didn't have, I mean, you know, Semisonic, uh, Travis this year, Fiona, these are artists that hadn't had anything, you know, for a long time that's been applicable. And I mean, you know, some stations are like, well, I haven't played, you know, we don't have any history with that artist. I'm like, well, you've only been on the air 15 years. So of course you have no history with them. They didn't put out a record in the time that you were on the air. So of course you don't. So let's, let's start the conversation over, shall we? And so there, the one benefit is to see, you know, I know Nick was talking about how like sometimes you want to throw the metrics out the door and that's <laughs> yes. But in an, in an era right now where we don't have touring, where the metrics that we do have, you know, whether it's Spotify or Shazam or something like that, I mean, you know, or even press hits, these are the things that we can point to right now and, and say, wait, you're seeing a lot going on. There's a reason there's a lot of buzz about this thing. People are interested and the reviews have been good. And especially when Fiona's album came oh. out, I mean, th that was ridiculous in terms of the, the reviews on that. I mean, you know, everybody's like, oh my God. And you yeah. look now at the end of the year lists and it's, it's right in the top five or pretty much every single list. That you know, one and so, the Taylor are the two. I, I haven't seen albums reviewed across the board so positively yeah, as yeah. those two I mean, in a long time. Taylor Records fantastic. You know, Taylor Records mm -hmm. fantastic. So, but then there are those artists. I mean, look, we had to really work to convince people that Michael Franti was not a hot AC artist this year, you know, uh, because he had a couple of his songs from previous times that crossed over and went big, like say, hey, and stuff like that. So then it was 10 years later, can AAA still play Michael Franti? Or yeah. is Michael Franti yeah. too happy for AAA? You know, I mean, that, that was literally like, I don't know, it's a little too happy. It's like, really? This year? This year we're gonna complain the music's too happy? You know? Yeah, that's wild. Well, you know, but we ended, we ended up having uh, his first number one at AAA in 10 years. Wow. Congratulations. That's great. I mean, he, he deserves all the success. But yeah, you, you almost get to a point when you do cross over and you do become super popular, then AAA is a format almost is like, okay, well, we gave you that boost. Oh, yeah. uh, you're, yeah. We're done with you now or whatever. Yeah. That's been a criticism of AAA for many, many years, though, about allowing artists to leave the format and not reclaiming ownership of them. Because, you know, I mean, look, Passenger has had a great history at AAA, but has had one big pop hit. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and there is that the mindset of, well, passenger is, is pop artist. No, mm-hmm. passenger's not. Passenger is absolutely a AAA artist. And thankfully, AAA has still figured that out. But there's, there's still a couple of those guys that are like, you've got to convince on a passenger record every time. And it's like every single one of them works. Every time passenger puts out a record, that record works at, this, at the format. And there's a new one coming next month. You know, so looking forward to working the new passenger. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so as you look back kind of on your career, especially during, you know, running your own ship there, um, what are some of the success stories you kind of point to or think most fondly of? I guess the Ingrid Michelson maybe would be one. Yeah, I mean, the Ingrid Michelson was an interesting one because so at that time, you know, she had an EP. Um, and I was friend, I've been friends for a number of years before that with Lynn Grossman, who's her manager. And Ingrid had played the non-com conference, uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. And it was a few months later and, you know, Lynn called me up and she's like, look, you know, we hadn't, we never really took a push at radio with this. What do you say? Why don't you, you know, is there a best friend discount you can give me for just from now to let's say Thanksgiving and, you know, let's just take a run with it, with the song breakable and see what we can do with it at radio and see if anything happens, no harm, no foul. I said, yeah, that sounds great. She said, oh, by the way, there's another song on the record that just started in some old Navy TV campaign last night, just a heads up. (laughs) Okay, cool. So that was on a Friday. And over the weekend, four of the top 100 Google searches were having to do with old Navy sweater song. (laughs) And by Monday morning, it was ridiculous. And uh, so Lynn called me up. She said, yeah, we're, we're going to change plans. <laughs> it was like, I kind of had a feeling and oh. we went with the way I am. And it just was a phenomenon. At the time, you know, keep in mind where we were in, in the January, you know, that was the fall of 2007, maybe? Yeah. Either fall of 2007 or fall of 2008. I can't remember which. But it was a time that, most people didn't have DVRs. The streaming services weren't there. So people were watching live television and people were not fast forwarding through commercials. And you had, and it was also the very beginning of the new fall season. So you had this old Navy sale for sweaters going on advertising in every single major show, kicking off the new fall season with everybody sitting through commercial breaks. Yep. It was an unavoidable song. (laughs) And the funny thing was, is like, we, I mean, we did very, very well with that song and it went on for months and went on for multi-format. Of course it became, you know, probably her, I mean, it definitely is her biggest hit, but everybody thinks, oh yeah, that commercial, God, that commercial ran forever. No, that commercial ran for three weeks. That was it. It was a three week sweater campaign. That's all it was. But it was so ingrained in people's heads that it was like, you know, oh my God, that, that sweater song, the old Navy, you know, whatever. But it's, it was, that was a massive thing. Uh, you know, I would say one of the other things over the years, you know, it's funny that I talk about, like, I, you know, I like to work with management and with labels more so than artists directly, but uh, Nick mentioned Mike Doty and I, Mike is one of my absolute all-time favorite artists that I've ever had the chance to work with. And I've been, you know, I was Doty's radio guy for a long, long time and his work ethic is unbelievable. We had a record out 
a handful of years ago and the full band tour, we, we started to work a record in the fall and the full band tour wasn't going to kick off till January, but Mike did not want to let the campaign go without him doing promotion around it. And so he had the idea, I said, okay, I'm going to get in a rental car and I want you to take me around the country or not me personally, but him by himself, go around the country. I want to visit radio uh, and I'm going to pull back in my driveway for Thanksgiving. We had seven weeks from, okay, go. And so we had to take some time and literally take a, a bird's eye view of the country and draw a map. How do we get Mike Doty from Memphis, Tennessee around the United States for seven weeks back to Memphis, Tennessee for Thanksgiving and have him working almost every single day Man. and visiting radio almost every single day. And he did it. And he was amazing. Every single, I mean, you had Doty at the station, oh, I mean, yeah. every single person who, who has met Mike Doty during his solo career, especially, you know, when, when he's been doing stuff on his own at the radio stations has fallen in love with the guy because he's just the easiest guy in the world to work with. Just a sweet, sweet gentleman. It was funny. I was texting with Mike just a couple of days ago because he just put out a new memoir. He wrote a book a number of years ago called The Book of Drugs. Yeah. Uh, and there's a new book that just came out. I die each time I hear the sound. Uh, uh, and I've been reading. I will. I want to read this to you because it sort of goes into a lot of what we've been talking about. The, there's a line in here that just floored me. And I text him like, I'm seriously, this, this line is killing me, man. It's killing me. It's like everything else. He, there's a little like three page chapter about being into a song that somebody he knew's roommate had on a mixtape. And he was in love with the song, but the girl didn't have what the song was on the mixtape. She didn't have it written down, but he would, he took the mixtape from her and dubbed it on another tape and then another. And then he was like, like, you know, six levels of cassette copying by the time, you know, he was listening to it and putting in all this. And it became, it was one of his all time favorite songs, but he didn't know what the song was. And then years later, thankfully with the internet, you could do some lyric search and figure out what the song was. And he found out what it was. Uh, and it was, I'm not going to, give too much but it's like the closing two sentences in the chapter are it was a band name i'd seen as i had seen so so many band names what else was on the albums i saw in the bins and didn't buy and i just i love that concept when we're talking about radio of like radio just dealing with the big names that they recognize yeah. and it's like how many cds are sitting on your desk how many files are on play mp that would blow your fucking mind <laughs> if you actually knew that that's what it was, yeah. that that was the artist who sang that song, you know, but it's so, there's so much focus on the big stuff that there's so much great music that's being passed over in the bins just because you don't recognize it. And I just absolutely, that reference, the way Mike worded it, I just absolutely floored me. There's YouTube and there's Spotify and there's all these things, but there's something to be said for curation, right? And sure and the trusted voice that can bring you. And, and that's the spot that AAA always held, you know, in my heart, I just always, you know, treasured the format because of that curation and because of the handholding, if nothing else. Like uh, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because sometimes you get in, you get in these conversations with radio and they're, they're hesitant to play a song for whether it's this a perfect sonic fit or lyrics right. are a little bit wonky in terms of where they think their listeners are and stuff like that. And I always ask the question, like, do your listeners trust you? You know, hold your yeah. listeners hand through this one. 
Yep. Trust me, the payoff is there. And sometimes I understand. I mean, you don't, you don't want people to flip off and, and say, no, you know, go hit the seek button or whatever. But especially, you know, non-com radio, especially when you're talking about AAA, because they're, they're more of the discovery stuff a lot of the times. But there is a level of you've earned your listeners trust. Now spend some of that capital. You know, yeah. not everything needs to be vanilla. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was talking to uh, one of my favorite things, ref, sort of comparisons. I was talking uh, with uh, someone about KGSR in Austin, you know, which has become ACL radio, which, you know, is still reporting to the format, but they're very much high Q research metrics station and all the stuff. And it's like, it doesn't sound like Austin though. And that's, that's sort of like, you know, when you take away that Austin sound, the description I gave was when you're in Austin, you can go to a Taco Bell and get salsa. But when you're in Austin, do you want to get your salsa from Taco Bell? <laughs> you know, I mean, you're in Austin for God's sake, yeah. go get some good salsa, you know? <laughs> and it's, and there's, there's like, again, it's that trusting of being your speaking for your community, speaking to your community and knowing which, you know, and, have, and taking your listeners along for the ride. Yeah. And uh, I think I reached out to you over the summer and as I had kind of rediscovered Reg down in Birmingham and, yeah. and I came across an old sampler I had of Reg's coffee house. Yeah. I think you had maybe sent out to everybody way back when that thing was, he was trying to syndicate, you know, what he does on that station. And it really is just him picking cool stuff and playing it and making a show out of it. And yeah, like, I mean, he's built up that cache over the years of just the audience trusts him and they know it's, it's amazing. Stuff, it's right? amazing. I mean, it's, it's a great station overall, Birmingham mountain radio down there, but I mean, especially Reggie's show in the morning, you know, I mean, that's where if you've got a new artist, you know, your fingers crossed Reg is going to spin it on there, you know, and I have a lot of stuff that, you know, is not ready for Birmingham mountain radio to put in rotation, but Reg is spinning every week. It's great to see because, you know, morning radio still gets the ears. Well, maybe a little less so right now because nobody's commuting. But Reg is absolutely one of the most trusted uh, new music curation voices out there right now. He's yeah. amazing. And he has been for years. Yeah, he's one of those guys I'm thinking of, of just like, we need more of those type of people, I feel like, overall. And, and there's so many great radio people and radio stations. And that's why I always hate those articles that come out. Rolling Stone's all notorious for every six months or so. They'll, they'll have some expose of the radio, how radio really works and all this. And they never yeah. talk about AAA. They never refer to all these great non-com stations around the country. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, well, because a lot of times that's not where the game's being played anyway. So, you know, I mean, so we're you've got some really up and up programmers who at the not, you know, at a lot of these AAA stations that are really just playing great music because it's great music. And yeah. again, it's, it goes back to the curation. It goes back to the handholding. Let me explain. Let me take you for a ride. Let me tell you about it afterwards. I mean, there's a new station. I know you just talked to Rev and, and lightning has been famous for, you know, being, uh, being a great station that really, associates themselves as part of the community and really they are they are nashville and they've also now got i don't you know the there's a new non-com that just signed on in nashville another non-com discovery station they're going for a younger demo than rlt's going but both of those stations do a great job of walking their listeners through the music they're playing and representing their town in their market right? and absolutely representing their town yeah i mean you know there's if you're not programming to your town you might as well be Pandora. Yeah. 
you know, you might as well just plug in Pandora on your into the board and walk the hell away because what's the point? But it's like, you know, that's AAA for the most part is independently owned for the most part. You know, we have a couple of chains, but we only have one iHeart station in the whole format. Yeah. You know, with KBCO in Denver. There's a couple of intercoms, you know, but for the most part, AAA is independently owned or owned by smaller chains like Town Square or something like that. And you do have programmers making the, the local decisions to what's best for their local, what are their listeners going to be into, where the artists are going to come into their towns and when everything goes back to quote unquote normal, yep. what's going to matter to their listeners. You know, as you said, like Haley Knox, I mean, Haley Knox would have done to tour in that market because she's already had the relationship with the radio station. Unfortunately, she can't right now, but. Yeah, exactly. This, this year has really just set everybody back. Um, you know, hopefully for not too much longer. Hopefully, I think Bonnaroo has set a date, right? For uh, September of 2021. Hopefully, that's my uh, goal of like, man, maybe that can be the first festival where everybody just loses their minds and we can sort of yeah. get back to normal. But uh <laughs> I mean, you know, South by's already sent out the thing for next March saying they're going to be virtual next March, oh, which wow. is absolutely expected. Uh, the non-com conference for AAA is technically scheduled for first week in May, but who knows? Okay. Um, I, I put more faith in the uh, the Boulder conference that takes place in August, you yeah. know, or we restart in 22 with, con- with music conferences. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I think we're we're all hoping – I think really the target is just the soft restart in the summer with a real get back to things in the fall with the new school year. As a parent, I'm sure you would hope that bit too. Oh, I'm telling you. Yeah, this, uh, this virtual at-home learning is for the birds. <laughs> I, I, give full, I give amazing credit to all you guys who are parents of young ones. You know, I've got older ones here and it's a, it's a different beast, yep. but I'm not, I'm not hurting cats all day long. Well, my wife's an eighth grade English teacher, so she's got the kids who they're too good to even turn their cameras on. So she's she's teaching to like eight blank screens every day for, you know, they have like 90 minute classes. It's just, oh man. But um, I really appreciate your time, Jesse. This has been awesome. And uh, I wanted to point folks toward your photography. You you referenced it earlier. Um, You've been doing great shots for uh, many years now, mainly of the, the conferences and stuff, but you do like all kinds of photography, right? Yeah, I started, uh, I had picked up a camera for the first time at, uh, in 2012. Um, I had never done any wow. kind of photography before that. It's specifically like I referenced the fact that I've been home now for almost 22 years. I don't leave, you know, and so even before COVID. So, I, you know, it's like I tend to get in my box and stay there. And so back around that time, uh, I really was had a lot of stress and was talking to my wife and said, look, I need, I need a hobby. I really do need a hobby that, and specifically a hobby that will let me leave, that makes me leave the house. And so we, we went back and forth the conversation and said, okay, I'll try photography. Sure. And so got a camera in 2012 and I'm a, lifelong learner so when i want to learn how to do something i dive in head first and so i would see a photograph of something and then i'm like well how did that photographer take that photo what did they need in terms of lighting what do they need in terms of lenses do they need a tripod what's how is that done and i would sort of oh okay i can do that and imitate that and uh and learn and then 
you know, a couple years later, I started to, when I was at conferences, I brought my camera so I could take like, you know, pictures of Boulder, Colorado, because it's a really pretty take, place to take pictures. Yeah. And somehow I snuck my camera with a 50 millimeter prime lens into the Fox uh, and they didn't catch me. <laughs> uh, and so I started to shoot people like Nikki Lane and stuff like that. I was, uh, and then I'm like, hey, I like the way these came out. And Joel Habeshaw over at New West is a massive, amazing photographer. Uh, and so he really has been helpful over the years of, you know what lens you should get? You know, you, have you tried doing this? And you you know, what about this? And so he gave me a lot of advice, uh, a lot of do's and don'ts. And over the years, you know, in addition to, you know, shooting things on the beat, you know, blurred beach pictures that I like to take and, uh, and waterfalls and trips to Italy and whatever, uh, a large part of it has been concert photography because I, you know, I live here, as I mentioned, I live in the suburbs with people who aren't in the industry. I'm not in a market that, are, that I have friends in the business with. So when I go to a concert nine times out of 10, I go myself, you know, and I go and I see the band. So I'm like, you know, Hey, uh, since I'm just going to be there by myself, can you give me a photo pass? Yeah, sure. And so over time, happily, the work that I've done with photography stuff has been noticed by enough managers and labels and stuff like that, that it's, it's become a lot easier for me to get photo passes for the shows that I want to go to, yeah. you know, where like last September of 2019, in the course of like 10 days, I got to shoot Lizzo and Vampire Weekend, you know, and it's like, those are two things I wouldn't have been able to do a couple of years earlier and be, you know, 10 feet from Lizzo at the top of the game. And it was like, holy shit, it was great. It's been an absolute blast. Uh, and the best thing is hearing from the artists themselves, like, you know, hey, dude, I saw your photo, and you know, in someone's office. And that's great. I thank you, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I actually got uh, the biggest coup for me was um, licensing a photo to be sold on T-shirts for Mondo Cosmo. And so I, you, if you go to Mondo Cosmo's merch store, there's a t there's a live music shot uh, and that's him on his knee with a guitar and that's my shot. So that, that's, that's been awesome. cool for all the concert t-shirts that I had growing up. I'd never had imagined that I have a photo in one of them. Well, and it's funny, uh, you probably are getting a taste of what those independent artists have to go through in order to get actual money for your art, right? Isn't there kind of a tough, uh, that's a tough road to go if you, to be a photographer for a living, right? <laughs> yeah, so no, hard. I would never, I would never do it for, I mean, cause I like people are, you know, it's like, oh, you could quit what you're doing and do photography. I'm like, no, I couldn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it, I've become friendly with a number of other local Boston concert photographers by being in the pit at so yeah. many shows now, but none of them do it for a living. It's either a side job that they love to do, or they're also like wedding photographers for, or portrait photographers, senior picture photographers for the, the main thing. I mean, I, I do senior portraits myself for friends' kids, you know, and I get hired out, I got hired to do that. And that's fine. And I also do, my wife is the co-president of a youth theater company locally. And I do, I've become the official photographer for the theater company. So I go in during the dress rehearsals before each show and do all the, the show photos for them. And it's a blast. I love doing that stuff. And it's kind of like concert photography where you got to be, the whole point is capturing that exact moment, you yeah. know, and anticipating when that moment's coming and be able to read someone's movement and where a song's going and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. That's exciting. 
Yeah. So, so where's the best place for folks to go to, to check out your stuff, Instagram, or do you have like a Instagram? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's absolutely where I have the most stuff. Um, the Instagram is just Jesse Barnett, J E S S E B A R N E T T. That's where I have the most of the stuff. I mean, I have a photography Facebook page that I've got to re- completely redo, but yeah, the best stuff's up on Instagram right now. Nice. Well, I teased it earlier, so I, I better ask you before I go, um, any tips for raising a, a theater kid? I think my six-year-old is headed that, that way. He was support uh, just supportive. Support <laughs> support I mean, that's, that's, that's really it. I mean, you know, eventually, you know, they're going to decide for themselves or have to come some, some form of decision as to, is it something that they like to do or is it something that they're good at doing? Cyrillian McClellan was on uh, David Tennant's podcast. And he was saying that he always planned on being an actor as an adult, but he never planned on doing it for a living. He's like, I always figured I'd do community theater or something where I, you know, because so I could scratch that itch. He's like, but I didn't plan on actually saying, oh shit, I'm good enough to do this and nothing else, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that's part of it with the kids that do theater. It's like, absolutely encourage them to do it you know at some point they're going to decide whether or not it's you know it's something they're going to pursue for the rest of their life i mean we've been you know my daughter's been doing it since she was seven years old and there are definitely kids that have been i think are amazing actors and actresses and singers that she's done shows with but you know they go to college and they go and do something you know in the biosciences and it's like okay fine it's like that's not who i am that's just something I enjoy doing. My daughter wants to go into musical theater. So of course, you know, I'll support that. She's, I think she's really good at it, you know? But the one thing I will say in terms of like the reason for supporting the kids doing theater, just the uh, tools that they learn doing it, working as a part of a team, as part of a cast, working to take direction, to be up on stage. One of the tools they teach you at Emerson is how to talk in front of people, you know, <laughs> but, but, uh, but I know a lot of people, I mean, I, you know, I was the co-chair of my town's education foundation. There were 25 people on the board. There were only two of us that would get up in front of sp- and speak to 500 sp- parents at a time because they were the only two that weren't afraid of public speaking, mm-hmm. you know? And I think now like my daughter can get up on stage and just belt out stuff or, you know, fall over, trip over herself in comedy you know, in front of 1500 people. And it's like, that's just, that's an amazing thing to me to have no fear in doing that stuff and just be able to get on stage, get into a character, get your voice behind the mic and just go. Uh, and I, I just absolutely admire it. So yeah, as a parent of, of a performance kid, absolutely encourage it for, because of the tools they're going to take from it, whether they end up pursuing it or not. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, and to, to close it out, some uh, things we should be looking out for in the new year, music-wise. So, can you, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned a lot of stuff you can't mention. Yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> but I will say, like, you know, I'm, I'm excited about the new Passenger album because I've worked multiple things from Passenger. There's a band that, I've ju- that I'm just uh, in the midst of helping plan the, the campaign for out of the UK called William the Conqueror. It's just one of those songs I heard and went, uh, yeah. Yeah, I did this. And so I don't know if radio's ever heard of them. So it's like, it's going to be one of those, okay, let's let's start a conversation as to how does this sound fit? I did work another band from the UK this year that was a lot of fun called Buzzard, Buzzard, Buzzard. It was like a UK band with a little T-Rex swagger and stuff like that. And and this, the William Conqueror sort of has a, not a similar sound, but a similar vibe 
that there's some grit here. There's a little cool. bit of an edge. And I think that's a common thread with a lot of stuff that with AAA, that it's not also pure smooth. That whether it leans Americana or AC or alternative or rock or whatever, it's got somewhere there's an underlying edge or a bite to it. Yep. And so that's something that I really like about the William the Conqueror record that, you know, hopefully be stupid to mention it now if I'm not going to be working it. But, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I think that we'll be involved with come, uh, come uh, February. Well, that's, I'm hopeful with the return of guitars with some of these bands, a lot of them coming yeah. out of England. Uh, it seems like Fontaine's DC, um, Idols, you know, stuff like that. Um, yeah. Bringing the rock back. Yeah, look, we're not, we're not short for cool music right now. You know, the problem is fitting it all in. Yep. But, you know, everywhere you turn, there's a lot of cool records being made. And as Dodie said, how much of that stuff you pass over because you don't know it, you know? <laughs> I always would go to the the cheap bin for sure at the uh, the record store. <laughs> That's yeah, where the gems yeah, no, are. Sometimes I remember shopping at uh, you know the record store in in the Bay Area at the time was uh, the warehouse, mm. uh, which was the equivalent of Strawberries on the East Coast, you know, um, or Sam Goody, I think it was. Uh, but um, you know, between the warehouse and Tower Records, you know, I would definitely flip through the racks and what do I not know? What looks cool? And I would once in a while I would say, let me just buy this off of the band's name and just find some fucked up band's name. You're like, I'm going to go buy that. And I would take it home and listen to it and spend the, you know, eight ninety nine or whatever it was on it and get into it. Or, you know, reading Rolling Stone at the time and finding bands that I remember there was a band in the, the, in 1987, I read a review for a band called Scruffy the Cat. <laughs> And I don't know if you remember Charlie Chesterman, but Charlie Chesterman was in Scruffy the Cat. <laughs> but I found the tape of it when I was, you know, in the Bay Area. And I come to college and my first day at Emerson, I'm checking into the dorm and the girl's got a, a boombox behind her and she's playing, like, oh, Scruffy the Cat. And she looks, she goes, how in the hell do you, because a local Boston band, she's like, how in the hell do you know what this is? I said, I read a review in Rolling Stone that sounded cool, so I bought it. And it's, there's a lot of cool music out there. That's the end result. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for sure. Well, I just saw on Twitter the other day that Tom Hanks's kid, I think Colin Hanks is his name. Yeah, yeah, he was in Life in Pieces. Yeah, he did a documentary on Tower Records, I think. Oh, really? Okay. All I don't right. know if it's brand new or if it's a few years old, but it, people huh. were tweeting about it the other day for some reason. So uh might want to check that out. I, I don't remember Tower Records cause, just because the places I lived, we, we didn't really have that. But uh, but yeah, Streetside Records, I worked part-time while I was working it because I was making such lousy money in radio. I still needed a part-time job <laughs> on the well, side. I, so One of the things I remember about Tower Records is at the end of the year when the station, I think it was Live 105, did their countdown, you know, of like the top 105 modern yeah. rock songs of all time, you know, or alternative, whatever they called it in 1986. You had to listen to the radio station to hear the countdown and see where things placed on the stuff. But after the countdown was over, you could drive to Tower Records in San Francisco and they had a printed list at the stage that the station had made up and put at Tower Records so you can get your printed copy of the top nice. 105 modern rock songs of all time. Oh, and we would drive every year, we would drive into the city to go pick up our list at Tower Records. That's awesome. Well, I do remember, I went out uh, one year for the Bridge School concerts in the Bay Area. Uh, yeah. Neil Young and, and his wife did for many years. And it was just an unbelievable lineup that year. And I'm a big Pearl Jam dork. So they were they were on the lineup with like, 
the who and green day and smashing pumpkins i think cheryl crow was on it that year it was just it's unbelievable all playing like small acoustic sets they'd each play like four or five songs or whatever but we made a point to go out to uh to amoeba that weekend um and that was just unbelievable that place i knew it was going to be incredible and it was just even you know some of these storied record stores are just when you're in there, it's like even better than you imagine. Yeah, well, the, right? well the, the one that I didn't mention actually that is one of the most legendary record stores of all time was a, a store in Mill Valley, California called Village Music. And okay. if you get a chance, look up Village Music Mill Valley uh, and look up the stories and look at the pictures on the walls because I mean, that place was old school. I mean, the room that had 78s in it, you know. Uh, oh, and that was the place that I would go in because that was directly in my town, mm-hmm. you know, that I would go in after school. My friend worked at the pizza place across the street from it. You know, yeah. my mom worked the travel agency two blocks away. So, you know, I would go in there cause I had time to kill and go leafing through there. And when I'm 15 years old and seeing Sam cook in the racks, you know, I mean, that's not a normal, that's not something I would have found at the warehouse or tower records, hmm. but that's something you would definitely have found in village music and, yeah. and being able to be introduced to stuff like that and teenage years from a record store. Like I said, you should go look up village music in the Valley. It would blow your mind to look in the photos of that place. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thankful there was a place called apple tree records, just some independently owned tiny little hole in the, strip mall type place in Springfield, Illinois. And they, I remember the day that I walked in there and they were blasting the Ramones brain drain album and it, cause it had just come out and I had never really experienced the Ramones. So it's just sounded, so, it was like the perfect introduction, you know, to something yeah. like that. So yeah. I mean, it's the whole a, big door for me. <laughs> like I said, I mean, we're, we're in the relationship business from the marketing business, but it does boil down to the fact that we love the product, which is music. Yep. You know, we're privileged to have grown up in environments that let us thrive into that and become geeks. <laughs> for sure. Well, uh, thanks for all the insights, Jesse, man. This was awesome. Oh, and, man, I had a blast. Thanks for talking to me. It was great. Thanks for going down memory lane a little bit and uh, a little preview of the upcoming year too. So everybody check out rightarmresource.com and uh, Jesse Barnett joining us on the radio friendly unit shifters podcast. Thanks again, man. Take care.